you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, folks? I'm Aaron Firefield. This is Chat with Traders podcast, and I really do appreciate you for tuning in. Welcome. On this episode, I have a returning guest who first appeared on episode 53. His name is a mystery, but he goes by the handle BTC Vix. Now, Episode 53, this was the first time I actually covered Bitcoin on the podcast, and that was at the very end of 2015. As you're probably aware, the cryptocurrency markets have evolved a lot since then. So my buddy BTC Vix is here to fill us in on what's been happening and potentially what lies ahead. We also cover how to acquire various cryptocurrencies, best practices for protecting your coins, is Bitcoin in a bubble, the frenzy surrounding ICOs, and much, much more. For context, I will mention this episode was recorded on the 21st of June 2017, and I also would like to let you know I have another Bitcoin episode coming out sometime soon, probably within the next few weeks, and this one is with Bobby Cho from DRW's Cumberland Mining, so stay tuned for that. But now, for episode 134, here is BTC VIX. I actually was looking back to our last uh, podcast, and I believe the price at the time was right around like five or six hundred bucks. Okay, I was going to ask you that actually, like how much was it last time we spoke? Because when we last when we did the the podcast initially, I think it was end of two thousand fifteen. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's. I think when you first asked me to come back on, I looked. I want to say it's right between five or six hundred. I can actually know. Let me just check one second right there. Yeah. Yep. That's about right. Okay. Actually, four hundred. So, December twenty, December twentieth, it was four hundred and sixty-two dollars. Okay. That's crazy. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and just the space is blown up. Um, I actually was. I was actually going to try and meet up with you. You went and uh, did that. Um, like 
what was it like traders and beer or whatever in New York with Sang Lucci? Yeah. Are you in New York? Are you? I'm not actually. I'm over by by Chicago, but uh, I think it was a week or two later. I was in New York though, in Times Square for the Bitcoin conference. Oh, okay. I mean, about two, a little over two years ago now. Um, I went to a Bitcoin conference in the same area, uh, not the same, not the same one, but um, there's maybe three, four hundred people there. This time there was over five thousand. Full on. So, <laughs> and. Uh, I mean, just to see the growth in the space over that period of time. And, you know, everybody now is doing some kind of project. (laughs) Um, And that's, I mean, we'll get into that with the whole ICOs and stuff like that. But uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you like seeing this sort of thing or did you kind of like it when it was a little bit more underground and sort of the general public wasn't quite so aware about it? I mean, I'm, I'm honestly happy. It's... I'm I'm maybe a little bit less cypherpunk than some of the people that were kind of originally in Bitcoin for those reasons. Kind of the same, you know, the same community that kind of birthed the internet. You know, do they really, are they really happy with where the internet went from there? I don't know, but I mean, it, it serves a lot of people today and makes their life better. And I don't think we could live without it. So I think Bitcoin is... You know, certainly being part of the internet revolution and the the money of the internet. So yeah, yeah, I'm happy about it. So, what was that conference like? I mean, who were the sort of people who were speaking there? Well, that's what's interesting too. Is so the when I went there about two years ago, it was kind of you know, it was still you still could feel that Bitcoin was small, right? It was a lot of very Bitcoin centric companies, like some company that was, you know, doing Bitcoin ARB and, uh, you know, a, a couple wallet companies. This time, though, I mean, the names that were there and that were speaking, you know, you know, Deloitte, the CME group that runs the, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, Fidelity was there. You know, these are, Citigroup was there. You know, these are big, big names that everybody knows. So I think that was the real, big difference between the conference of two years ago and this one is wow wow how far have we come we have you know very household names that are interested in the space and involved in it too yeah actually that's it's just come back to me something i was gonna ask you uh just uh, just before um you know how you said when we spoke uh was it like back in 2015 towards the end there bitcoin was about 460 dollars give or take you know, were people, do you recall people saying that that was really expensive then? Was there any talk like that? You know, it's interesting because that time we talked, we had just broken out after almost a nine month downtrend or downtrend into a sideways where we were basically stuck between two and three hundred dollars. Um, so a lot of us, at least in the community that had survived the bear market, we thought like, wow, like, you <laughs> You know, Bitcoin just doubled, you know, at that at that time that we were talking. I don't know if we thought it was expensive and stuff, but we we weren't getting the kind of publicity that we're getting now. And I can only kind of look at that a little bit in hindsight and compare it to other the, the bubble prior that we we uh, fell from. But, you know, the space had just kind of been, been left for dead for quite a while. Yeah, the only reason I asked that is because... I kind of get the vibe and from different bits and pieces you 
read and headlines that pop up. There's certainly that that um, idea that Bitcoin is very much overpriced and very expensive at the moment. How much is it right now? As we sit here right now, it's twenty six. 60 call it i mean there's some variation in the exchanges but a little 2600 um it's interesting you bring that up and we can definitely go into that in the podcast because i think this adoption wave has spawned uh what i call miss the boat syndrome type people you know people that (laughs) people basically that have heard of bitcoin they you know maybe they read a few articles on it maybe they even bought you know, some just to see what it was about. Um, but they were kind of more, more or less just observers and they thought it was, it was cool. It was neat only to watch it go from say, you know, four or 500 up to almost, you know, touch 3000 at one point. A lot of those people I think are almost like mentally or psychologically, you know, predispositioned to not want to buy it now because they remember when it was $500. So then now the wave is, you know, a lot of them bought Ether and a lot of these ICO projects that are coming out. So, you know, like I I actually have friends that they know I've talked about Bitcoin forever. Some have even bought Bitcoin and sold it quickly or they just didn't buy much. And now they they like talk to me about Ether like it's the second coming of Christ. (laughs) (laughs) And do you tend to agree or not quite? I mean, I will say I underestimated Ether. I have to be very fair about that. Definitely a lot of potential that I missed. I just think there is... Ether is more of an app-centric project, and there's a lot of potential that that could far exceed you know anything that Bitcoin can do. Bitcoin transfers value really well. Uh, Ether can make a lot of these projects and do incredible things, but that comes at a risk too. I mean, you know, the DAO hack was a was a a product of a missed, you know, missed bug in the code, basically. And I mean, yeah, they fixed it, but you know, what's to say when we get to these complex projects and and code that they're trying to put into Ether, you know, it sounds really good right now, but let's see it actually play out. So I'm I'm ca- cautiously optimistic. I still I after being a pretty big ether skeptic, I've come around to appreciate it a lot more. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll definitely talk about that a little more uh, as we get into things. Just before we do, let's sort of I, I guess um, just go over some basics. You know, I was having dinner the other night with uh, my girlfriend and one of her friends, and. Somehow Bitcoin came up. I obviously bought it up <laughs> and my girlfriend's friend had never heard of it. And she's like, well, what is it? And I was kind of a little bit stuck on how to explain it. I was like, well, it's this decentralized kind of digital currency. She's like, okay, but like, what can you buy with it? Like, how can you use it? And I didn't really know what to say. So, I mean, <laughs> I want to ask you. How do you explain Bitcoin to people outside of finance? Yeah, and it's, I'm glad you brought this up because I was looking down the list of questions and I felt pretty comfortable. And then I was even asking some of the uh, some of the people in my group, like, you know, what do you do with this question? Because it, it's certainly been asked to me before. 
And I don't ever think I've mastered the way of actually explaining it. Uh, in short, I usually say it's, you know, it's, it's digital cash or digital money. And, uh, you know, to kind of go further than that, you, you have to understand that, you know, the internet prior to Bitcoin existing was, you know, if, if, if I said I had a file on my computer, I could copy, paste, and send it to you, and you have the same file. So there is no such thing as digital scarcity. Uh, Bitcoin basically is one of the, the crowning achievements of it is it introduced a way to prove scarcity. And now you have a digital asset um, that has value and can be transferred, and there's no way that... I can copy paste that to your bin and you can have that same value. You know, it's, it, that's where the blockchain comes in and where that, that ledger is verified. I don't know. Is that a good way to explain it? I don't know how deep you want me to go with it. I think it is. Like it certainly hits on the technology behind Bitcoin. But I think a lot of the confusion from people who are certainly outside of finance and maybe even quite a few people inside of finance are like, but where can you actually use it? Like, you can't really buy anything with it. I mean, there's the odd sort of site around that accepts Bitcoin, but for the most part, like there's no real way for you to actually spend Bitcoin, is there, and actually use it to buy something? Well, I would say that the dark markets would have, uh, you know, they, they would have a strong contention to that point because, you know, whether it be ransomware <laughs> related, uh, drugs online or Actually, one of the bigger spaces that's been growing and one that I'm a part of, the online gambling scene has been adopting, you know, Bitcoin as a funding mechanism. So, you know, obviously you're not going to Chipotle and paying for your Chipotle, but between the dark market and then there are actually a lot of gift card companies. It's just an app on your phone, you know, Amazon, Target, you know, caribou, whole foods. Like I, I can basically pay for all the stuff that I use almost daily with Bitcoin. But you know, there's a proxy there. I don't know if that's something you want me to explain because, I mean, still Bitcoin is best used for a lot of the nefarious things. Uh, yeah. Well, well, tell us a little bit about that proxy. I mean, feel free to go and say it if you like. Well. You know, the the original, one of the first use cases of Bitcoin was on the Silk Road. And the Silk Road is this online drug bazaar that, uh, you know, the only, they didn't take credit cards or Western Union or anything. They took Bitcoin because it, it has, when the transaction occurs, you have the asset. You know, it's, it's irreversible. There's no chargebacks. So, you know, that's why it became really prominent in the drug space and there's certainly uh some people thought it was anonymous you know there's kind of a confusion that bitcoin is is anonymous and untrackable which is not true um and now we're actually seeing we have uh monero and we have zcash that are trying to basically put that element of uh anonymous transactions to to the final you know, the, the final place that Bitcoin couldn't get to. So, you know, the, the dark markets are adopting those currencies as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's this sort of thing, you know, you've just given a few examples of where you can use Bitcoin. Some of them are obviously household names, but then for a large part, it's still widely accepted and the main currency used in 
on, on the dark web for buying things which you maybe shouldn't be buying. <laughs> you know, I don't really think that does any favours for people's like perception of Bitcoin, does it, when they hear that sort of thing? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and then my second part would probably be that it's, you know, it's largest use case right now is still speculation. I mean, if you're not using it to buy such things as that, you're probably buying Bitcoin because you believe that, uh, you know, this fulfills a missing part of the internet. You know, credit cards aren't native to the internet. Uh, they have lots of issues. You know, Bitcoin is kind of that next step, or more so, cryptocurrencies are the next step. So I think the kind of belief in the technology is going towards, um, you know, the blockchain stuff. And that that's kind of where a lot of people, I think, that have been critical of Bitcoin specifically are saying, well, no, I believe in, I believe in the blockchain. Um, but, I, you know, Bitcoin, I don't really know if it itself needs to have value. It's just as we sit here today, it has the largest network effect. It's the most secure cryptocurrency on earth currently um and that you know conduces a lot of value yeah so you said that just before that the transactions are not completely anonymous like a lot of people think they are i mean what parts of the transaction are not anonymous like how trackable uh is it well there's a couple different ways that they can actually pinpoint to you directly um, say you decide to buy your bitcoins on an exchange where you have to provide, you know, know your customer information, like a bank account. So if you go and buy bitcoins on, say, Coinbase and you send them somewhere, they know where you're sending them. Now, it could be that you, you send it to your personal wallet and you sell it to somebody on the street and it gets lost in there, but they, they actually, you know, now know an identity in that chain. Also, there's, you know, your IP address. Uh, depending where you send it from, can be tracked. Um, I think that's why a lot of people that try and be anonymous with Bitcoin use the Tor network. Okay, so is, is it always been that way, or is this something which has come about with more regulation and etc.? It's always been that way. It's just the um, tools that law enforcement or those wanting to track um, transactions has, has improved quite greatly. Um, and some of it's not just law enforcement. I mean, during the whole Mt. Gox hack and plenty of exchange hacks, people try and track where those coins have gone. Uh, doesn't always necessarily mean they know who has them. I mean, they can see the on the blockchain that's public and everybody can look at it. They know where those coins are sitting. Uh, it just depends if they end up interacting with somebody that can then identify them or they leak their IP address or something to that effect. Okay, right. So let's talk a bit about actually getting set up. I guess just for a bit of context here, you know, I recently, I'm probably fall into that category of uh, the boat which you described earlier, the people who, um, what was the analogy used? Wasn't fair of missing out. <laughs> it, it, it's it's kind of FOMO, but I actually call it now the missed boat syndrome. People, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I've been saying for like I don't know, probably the last twelve months. So I really should buy some Bitcoin. I don't have no intentions of trading it. Uh, I just want to put some money into it, you know, and just sit on it for a while and and see what happens. You know, the way I look at it, I mean. If I put a few thousand dollars into it and it goes nowhere or it, 
it loses value, you know, no big deal. It's not going to change my life. But if it um, continues on the path that it has been, then, um, you know, it seems like a pretty good bet. So, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll buy some Bitcoin, I'll buy some Ethereum. But when I actually came to do it, I didn't really know what was going on. I was a little bit confused by it because it's, it's very different from opening a brokerage account and funding a brokerage account, isn't it? So, do you just want to describe to us a little bit about how you'd actually go about opening an account if you wanted to buy? Let's just stick with Bitcoin uh, for this example. Sure. And I mean, some of it is certainly dependent upon where you live, but I'll come at it from my perspective of being in the U.S. So as we stand right now, there's really two prominent avenues, I would say, that somebody in the U.S. would go about trying to get Bitcoins. Actually, three, but I'll, I'll gloss over one of them. Well-known company, Coinbase. It's uh, Andreessen Horowitz, venture capital-backed company. Um, they're out of San Francisco. And it acts much like setting up a PayPal account. Um, you end up basically buying Bitcoin through an ACH transfer. I'm not entirely sure on the fees. I think it's 2%. Certainly a bit of fees there. Um, another avenue, I know you had uh, Benjamin Small from Gemini on. You could wire money into Gemini go on their exchange, uh, buy Bitcoin that way. Um, they also have a way to trade it directly. Coinbase does have an exchange. It's just not available in all states. So, you know, we'll stop right there as far as obtaining Bitcoin. Now, trading Bitcoin is, uh, is another page to turn that we can go down. But is that kind of the answer you're looking for? Yeah. Okay. So essentially what you need to do is you need to open a wallet, don't you? You need to open a wallet or create a wallet and then you need to put your fiat currency into that wallet, which is in this case a Bitcoin wallet. Is that correct? Uh, not totally. I mean, if you're using Coinbase or Gemini, you're effectively funding a wallet that's that they're in custody of. So you don't necessarily need to have a personal wallet if that's what you're going to do. Now, you can go down that path. <laughs> Even if it's on Coinbase, though, it is a, a wallet in some sense, isn't it? Like it's a, it's your wallet on Coinbase. Am I understanding that right? Yes. And, but when you open an account, you're, you're effectively opening up a wallet um, that's in their custody. Kind of similar to opening a bank account, right? Okay. And so, what's the alternative to that? Having a wallet that's actually on your actual sits on your computer on your hard drive. Um, that is one option. I would say that many people now are are going towards what we call a hardware wallet. Basically, is a jump drive. Um, you plug it into your computer. You get it all set up. Uh, there's a pin number on it, and now basically your entire computer can be infected with malware. But since you have the hardware piece that doesn't um, cross the barrier between your computer and, and it, other than to sign the transaction, you're no longer at risk of basically there being key loggers or some kind of virus on your computer that would uh, swipe your keys. Right. And so, I mean, that sounds a little bit tricky to set up. I mean, how difficult is it? Actually, it's not too bad, other than the hardware wallets are on back order till like September. <laughs> it's, it's really not bad at all. They give you pretty step-by-step -step instructions. They actually tried to make it kind of 
idiot-proof to some degree. And literally, it's just a jump drive you essentially plug into your USB port. And um, you can. Tr- I know they have Ether support on there as well as Bitcoin, so you don't need two jump drives for different currencies. I think they're actually bringing on support for some other ones. I haven't been following it too closely, but you know that's certainly one way you can store it. Now, you could store it on your own computer. You could store it at other exchanges. So these jump drives you're talking about, I mean, how much do they set you back roughly? Like under $70. Oh, okay. Okay. So not bad. Yeah. Right. I was sort of wondering if that was maybe something that you should consider when you, you know, start getting a bit more serious about it and you have a fair whack of cash in or or not cash, but a fair amount of Bitcoin. But, um, you know, for $70, I mean, that's pretty minimal. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that, and that's why, you know, after this largest price rise, we've seen, you know, them back ordered till I think it's September. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I know they were sold out for uh, the last time I asked somebody if they were getting it. Okay. <laughs> so you touched on fees before um, when you go from fiat currency into uh, Bitcoin. Uh, on let's say Coinbase as an example, where else do you pay fees? Like, do you pay fees every time you send Bitcoin to another wallet or onto an exchange or are there any transactions that are done without fees? It's kind of interesting you bring that up because the Bitcoin network, one of the big criticisms and source of a lot of political wrangling is the scalability of Bitcoin. You know, Satoshi way back in the day put the one megabyte cap on blocks. Now, we've been running up against that, and we've seen the the need to actually apply a higher transaction fee to send Bitcoin across the network to get picked up in a block. You know, when this basically backlog of transactions happens called the, the mempool, you now need to adjust your fee upward to get it in, get it into a block and have it confirmed. So, I mean, if I was sending Bitcoin to you, um, if we want it to basically confirm within 10 minutes, we're probably paying, you know, somewhere between 50 cents to a dollar now, depending on the size of the transaction and some other factors. So it's interesting that Bitcoin actually has become kind of expensive now to move across, uh, borders when it used to be, you know, half a penny. So those are things that are, you know, it's kind of coming to a head here within the next couple of months of whether there will be a scaling solution and agreement on it or not. They'll make probably interesting tradable event, but there's fees there as well as when you go on exchange and you're going to, you know, buy and sell Bitcoin, depending on the exchanges, you're paying fees on that. It's usually though quite a bit less than uh, what you pay at a typical broker. I suppose that's a little bit dependent upon the size you're trading as well, but uh, you know some of the fees are quite minimal. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then 
they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Yeah, would you mind expanding on the scalability issues a little bit more and uh, paying extra fees to get your transactions um, across quicker? Um, Could you just go into that a little further? Yeah, so, I mean, a long time ago when Bitcoin was just a a technical experiment, uh, Satoshi ended up putting in that the block size, which means is how many transactions can fit into each individual block would be one megabyte. Back then, it was just, they just set put that in there just as kind of a placeholder. Now we've come multiple years, and now Bitcoin is a $40 billion currency, and people want to scale that. Now, the miners that want transaction fees, they're not uh, wanting to go along with this because they want to collect more uh, transaction fees as long as they can. And there's a tremendous amount of politics that are going on between the different users of Bitcoin, whether it be the miners, whether it be the, the actual users of it, the wallets, the exchanges, um, and then the people you know, developing the code, the core, core developers. So basically we've run into a situation where the network is processing so many transactions that now you're having to raise the fee to get into these blocks. And if you don't raise your, you know, if you try and send a transaction with zero fees, um, it's possible it might not confirm for days. And depending if there ends up being a pretty big backlog of transactions that have fees in front of you, you just keep going to the end of the line. So I've never actually had that happen. I know some people have gone about doing services to try and get it accelerated and paying basically mining pools to to mine that block for quite a, a very large fee that they now uh, want to get through the blockchain. So, you know, these are issues that are coming up as far as the scalability of Bitcoin. And it's been a lot of the other currencies, including Ether, have been trying to kind of say, hey, we're, you know, we're cheaper now and, and our network can handle the scalability, which is funny because today, or really yesterday, um, during one of the ICOs, we actually saw the Ethereum network have have scalability issues as far as getting transactions in and the network was really backlogged. So it's not quite as cheap to send Bitcoin anymore unless we get some of these scalability issues 
in place and more more than anything that there's consensus for it. Okay. But how do you actually decide how much you're willing to pay in fees? Like, do you have any say in that or does it depend on... So, the wallets you use, they actually are pretty good now where it's kind of dynamic and they'll tell you like, uh, if you pay this this fee, you should be in the next block. If you pay this fee, you know, it's usually, they'll change it into a dollar amount for you too and tell you um, you'll be in the next three blocks, so 30 minutes. So, it has gotten to the point where they'll kind of, you know, they're, they're estimating about what fee you, you pay, you should be able to get into the next block or so. So it's not quite, you know, you aren't just picking something out of the sky. Um, and even the exchanges uh, that, that do transactions regularly adjust those um, and give you kind of a suggested fee so that you, you actually, your transaction actually go through. So does that make some sense? Yeah, it does. Just, uh, I'm going to fire another question your way around that. When you talk about the block, and I f- have a feeling we may have spoken about this uh, when we did the last podcast, but what is the block actually referring to? The block is basically, there's a, there's a period of time between this really difficult puzzle being solved. And during that time, basically, the transactions that are coming in are getting assorted based upon highest to lowest fee. And as, as we get up to the one megabyte cap, you know, that those are the transactions that are going to go through the block. And then when the block is solved, which is this complex math problem, they now are, are fully put into the blockchain and you get one confirmation then, you know, your, your, your block, your transactions now confirmed your transactions in the blockchain officially. And then the miners just move on to solving the next problem, and the next block is is basically compiled um, the same way. Okay. So how many how many transactions? I don't know if this is the right way to ask the question, but how many transactions would it take to fill up a block of one megabyte? Hmm, I actually don't even know the answer to that question. Like I presume it would be thousands and thousands, right? Yeah, and it's also dependent upon like how complex your wallet is. Like like if you just have you sent one transaction to your wallet and there's say ten bitcoins there and you send it once, your transaction's actually smaller in in bytes as well as you you'll require less of a fee to get it into the uh, blockchain. But if say you sent three bitcoins in from you know, I don't know, let's say Bitfinex and then three Bitcoins in from Poloniex and four from, a, I don't know, another exchange. And then you try and send that. The fact that they're actually needing to go back and look at where those transactions have come from now means that your transaction is, has more size to it. So it's going to cost you more. Does that make some sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, just a question around the mining of Bitcoin and I have a feeling this is maybe also something I asked you last time, but is it possible for all coins to be mined? Like, is is that ever going to happen? Or is it set up in a way that there will always always be more coins to continue mining? Yeah, it's, it's an asymptote. So it never, it approaches, but it can never actually reach the 21 million in existence, at least in, in as far as Bitcoin goes. Um, so there'll always be some block reward. 
it'll just, you know, I think it's every four years. It's actually based upon how many blocks, but it takes about every four years. The, the block reward, or sorry, the, yeah, um, the, the mining reward uh, for solving blocks halves. So, you know, as you can imagine, it started at 50, it went down to 25, 12 and a half, 6.75. It's just going to keep going till, um, you know, it can never actually reach zero. So there'll always be new coins entering the system. It'll just kind of grind to a halt, though. A little bit earlier, we kind of spoke about how to turn your, your fiat currency into Bitcoin, for example. Let's say someone wants to buy, let's say Ripple, just as an example, one of the lesser known but somewhat becoming increasingly popular uh, cryptocurrencies. How do you actually buy Ripple? Like, how do you how do you go about that? Do you need to turn... Do you need to be holding Bitcoin and then convert that Bitcoin into Ripple or can you go straight from uh, fiat currency into Ripple like you can from fiat currency to Bitcoin with something like Coin, uh, Coinbase or how? what's the process of, of doing something like that? Um, there might be, I'm not quite familiar if there's any, I'm sure there's some exchanges that are allowing uh, Ripple to USD pairs. So if there's a way you can fund those accounts with U.S. dollars, you'd be able to go about doing it that way. But I would say probably the most common way of doing it is to first buy Bitcoin and then go to an exchange that has a, a Bitcoin Ripple pair. Coinbase doesn't have it. Gemini doesn't have it. But, um, you know, Poloniex does. They are U.S. based. Um, they have a lot of the, I guess, altcoins or other other digital assets there. So, you know, the, the gateway usually ends up being Bitcoin. It's not the only one. There's, you know, Litecoin and Ethereum both seem to have fiat gateways that have kind of come about, especially in this last uh, bubble or adoption push. Now, the most common way to access those other currencies is probably going to be to first buy Bitcoin. Okay. So let's say someone just wanted to hold Ripple. I'm not saying you should, but let's just, as an example, if someone wanted to do that, they would essentially, if they were to do it through, uh, is it Pol- Poloniex? They would essentially be holding all their Ripple on an exchange, wouldn't they? Yes. Yep. If they keep it there, they're, they have the counterparty risk of the exchange as their risk. Okay. And is that, like generally speaking, is that a smart thing to do? Or is that something you'd probably advise against doing is actually holding your money on an exchange if you can avoid it? The, the issue is, is even though Bitcoin might be a, a really fantastic vehicle to send across the earth and to, to use uh, when you're in possession of it, when you have a third party, uh, whether like an exchange that now has custody of your, you know, they're holding the private keys. So when you ask them to send Ripple somewhere, they're obliged to do it. You know, they don't. They could say no, they could get hacked. Um, there could be plenty of different factors where those coins on there are no longer, they're not yours until you, you send them to your own wallet. But more so, there's the risk of that counterparty you know, losing the coins, getting hacked, or something to that effect. That's why, you know, for traders, we do have to have some coins on exchange. But if you have a large holding, you should either diversify at minimum or look. T- 
to some kind of wallet solutions that you hold the private keys. So, I mean, that that ledger wallet, that hardware wallet I, I was talking about is one solution. Um, there are a number of other ones. When you say diversify, in what way are you talking about diversifying, like diversifying your holdings across um, multiple exchanges? A lot of these exchanges trade the same asset. Uh, well, I'll use an example. I know you're using Ripple, but... I'll use Ethereum. Um, you know, outside of Bitcoin, I would say Ethereum or Litecoin is probably the most popular. So, I mean, Ethereum trades on Poloniex, it trades on Gemini, trades on Bitfinex, trades on, you know, Chinese exchanges. So, if you put all of your coins on one exchange and that exchange goes down, whether it be, you know, temporary or otherwise, you know, you don't have access to those coins or it's possible you could lose all of them. So I would suggest that minimum you shouldn't hold all of them in one place, um, whether it be on other exchanges or probably the more prudent thing to do would be to actually have a hardware wallet where you keep the, the majority of them um, in your possession. Okay, sure. Since we last spoke... I think one of the major hacks which has happened, and feel free to correct me on this, was the Bitfinex hack. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about actually what happened there and maybe we can go into that a little bit? I mean, the Bitfinex hack, definitely not the largest, but one of the largest. It was uh, 120,000 Bitcoins at the time. I don't know, I can't really do the math in my head, but that's... A lot of money. Yes, it's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about the Bit the Bitfinex hack is they were using a implementation of BitGo, which uh, BitGo they sell themselves as a software as solution company, even though some may say their website doesn't really look like that. And basically, they were on they were auto signing these transactions. You know, it was one hundred and twenty thousand bitcoins left Bitfinex and under. You know, I think it was like 40 minutes and, and there's multiple signatures involved. Bitfinex was one of them. Uh, Bitfinex has another one in cold storage that wasn't used, but the other signee was BitGo. Since then, Bitfinex introduced basically a debt token. They've since paid all of that back to their debtors and retired the token in under a year. So... It's kind of a successful failure in a way. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. Uh, certainly people that received the debt token and took, I think it was a 33% haircut or a 36% haircut at the time, uh, did not receive all of the funds that they originally had on that exchange. Um, others that waited maybe did. So what's a debt token? Is that like an IOU or something? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what they did is they introduced, called the BFX token, you know, Bitfinex BFX. Um, they issued the same amount in, in dollars that they owed to each person because the haircut of losing 120,000 bitcoins was, I, I'm not 100% sure, it was either 33 or 36% across all, all people on the exchange. So you had $100,000 there. Basically, they took, um, I don't know, $33,000 from you and they gave you the same amount in debt tokens. Uh, the debt tokens traded all the way down to, 
you know, it's supposed to be a dollar per debt token, but I think it went all the way down to like 30 cents or 20 cents, especially after the hack and people dumped their tokens. Um, eventually it was redeemed for a dollar. They retired the entire outstanding debt that they had. Right. So the people who were responsible for the hack, were they ever caught? Does anyone have any idea who was behind it? I know there's still some investigations going on, but I have no idea. I, I've not really heard much from that. Uh, Bitfinex, not long after the hack, did kind of put out a press release saying, hey, uh, hey, hacker, <laughs> if you want to spend some of your Bitcoins faster, how about let's arrange a deal where you give some back and we'll give you a more anonymous currency like Monero. It was an interesting gesture. I'm pretty sure they did not get any response from that. Okay. So who actually investigates this sort of thing? Like who steps in there? I can only say from what Bitfinex has said, they, they, I think they list a number of the authorities. That includes the FBI. Um, I think maybe some of the British authorities as well that outside of that, I'm really, I really don't know who investigates that. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just wondering because I mean, you know, a lot of these exchanges aren't as regulated obviously as, um, you know, your stock exchanges, your futures exchanges, etc. So I was just wondering like how much authorities really were concerned about th- these type of events, if at all. I mean, I do think it was a very high profile hack. Um, it got quite a bit of coverage from Bloomberg and, and other mainstream financial news services. Uh, so I, I certainly think they're involved. I just don't know to what degree and who all the parties were. I mean, Bitfinex still hasn't been that forthcoming as far as all the stuff going into that. And it's been a criticism of them. I just, I, I don't really know. Okay. So, you know, obviously this hack which we've been talking about is quite a high-profile hack. Are there smaller hacks which are happening much more frequently, which uh, perhaps don't get as much coverage? Like, is that something which is taking place quite frequently still? I'm just trying to think if I've, I've actually heard of any hack recently. I don't know if I really have. Mm, there There have been issues where... I mean, Ethereum not too long ago cost an exchange, I think it was upwards of 10, 10 million, and it was more of uh, an issue of how they implemented to take take Ethereum as far as deposit and withdraw. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't really a hack per se, but it was some kind of exploit that did cost the exchange money. Um, and those things... You know they they are real. I know those they they still do happen. We just tend to hear about the biggest ones. How about DDoS like DOS attacks? Are they something which um, take place from time to time? Yeah, exchanges are a very high profile um, or a very I should say a very ripe target for DDoS because it induces. A lot of panic. A lot of them are web-based. Um, so the stability of a web-based platform is far less than uh, whether it's standalone or API-driven. So these people, you know, they may DDoS the exchange but still be able to access it through API. Um, so they're able to, you know, create panic and, you know, take advantage of those things. It also, you know, it seems 
when some of the coins, especially on Poloniex, which has probably been one of the biggest issues as far as DDoS or just downtime in general, um, coins will be, you know, rallying and the DDoS pretty much so stops that rally from continuing. It, uh, you know, taints sentiment and uh, people are no longer that willing to, to trade it or just be involved in uh, something that they, they don't know if they're going to have access to the platform. Yeah. So, I mean, with all of this being said, like, how do you decide who's trustworthy? Because like you said, like, this is this is very real. Like, it, these things do take place. You know, no one wants to be having thousands and thousands of dollars somewhere and sort of be overly concerned about the possibility that they might lose all that money through no fault of their own, you know. Um, like, how do you decide who you can trust? I mean, are there any red flags for, I guess, uh, like signs for exchanges or wallet providers who you should stay away from? I mean, the one good thing about the Bitcoin community is all these exchanges are essentially startups. So they're usually pretty small teams. Um, they, they're not really large organizations and these people that are running them or, um, you know, representatives from them are very accessible. So one of the really good things that has come about after, you know, the Mt. Gox hack and fall of Mt. Gox some years ago is the exchanges actually, many of them we do talk to quite regularly. I mean, daily, uh, with, with many of them. So some of that is these people are here present in our community. We talk to them a lot. We definitely give them a lot of slack rightfully so when things aren't going right we see how they kind of handle under that pressure um do they just shut down and not want to hear us or do they take that criticism make their platform better and stuff like that so all of that kind of goes into a trust element where if you're going to trade bitcoin you have to have some element of trust to put your money on these exchanges thankfully uh the double-edged sword of leverage is actually made the ability to trade Bitcoin uh, more so because you no longer need to put as much on exchange to have the ability to trade as much as you would have before. Um, certainly there's other risk associated with that, but leverage is actually one that mitigates some of your exposure risk to putting more coins on that exchange. Okay. Yeah, that's actually a really good point you bring up. What sort of leverage is typically available? Um, depending on the platform. I mean, I I think Poloniex and Bitfinex are in the like 3 to 5x range. Um, Kraken as well. And then you can get on some of the derivative instruments. Uh, Bitmex has all the way up to 50x. Um, maybe even 100x. I know they scaled that back a while ago. Some of the Chinese platforms, 20x. So... I mean, there's a pretty wide spectrum there as far as uh, the amount of leverage you want to play with. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just thinking about what we should tackle next. You brought up before. Uh, I think you. I think your first question was, "How would somebody get Bitcoin?" But um, as long as we were talking about leverage, the the next point would be, you know, trading Bitcoin. Right? Is 
is it's not as intuitive as people think, uh, especially people that have been accustomed to, you know, setting up maybe a, a brokerage account and, you know, trading Forex to stocks to, you know, commodities. Uh, Bitcoin is not, it's, it doesn't have as much, it has a very minimal exposure to the, the legacy system that people are used to trading. Now, I say that because there is an instrument called GBTC. It is, uh, Barry Silbert, um, he was the creator of Second Market, which was famous for offering shares of Facebook, uh, to the, in, in private before they went public. And there's a bunch of other tech companies in there, but he, he actually is the only one that has, uh, you know, a Bitcoin related, uh, entity that trades on, I think it's NASDAQ OTC. It's a closed end fund. Um, so people that say, you know, want to go through fidelity and never want to touch Coinbase or buy Bitcoins and deal with the custody aspects that we we're describing before, they could go on to, you know, their TD Ameritrade platform and trade the ticker GBTC. It's uh, the Bit- Bitcoin Investment Trust. Now, there's like a lot of funds, there's fees involved. Um, and right now, the most interesting thing is it's trading at about a 90% premium. I mean, it's, it's at like $4,400 right now. Um, so, you know, it's a 90% premium to net asset value of, of, of Bitcoin that it's supposed to track. So you have that, you have the constraints of the typical stock market hours. So it does close. But, you know, that is one, one element of where if somebody wanted to trade Bitcoin, they could do it through that vehicle. So what do you mean by it has a 90% premium? Yeah, so, I mean, right now, Bitcoin, as we said, is at $2,600. So the Bitcoin Investment Trust is supposed to buy and sell Bitcoins and keep their share price, the share of uh, GBTC, in line with roughly what the Bitcoin price is. Due to a number of things, probably being a lot of the interest in Bitcoin, um, as well as people maybe not wanting to go to Coinbase and deal with the security and storing Bitcoins. It's trading currently at about a 90% premium. So the GBTC price is uh, 4400 right now compared to the 2600 that's sitting on all the Bitcoin exchanges. So it's, it's inflated quite significantly. Okay. So it is meant to track the price of Bitcoin uh, fairly closely then. But obviously, it's it's not right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's supposed to be, but currently, it's quite disconnected from the price. <laughs> okay. This isn't in any way similar to the ETF, which the Winklevoss brothers were trying to put together, is it? Or is that totally different? No, it, it came quite a bit before the Winklevoss. I'm not a securities lawyer, so I don't know how they got it through in onto the, the OTC market. But basically, the Wink of Us were trying to launch on, I think they went to BATS finally, but they were trying to launch a full ETF on there, not a closed-end fund like uh, GPTC. Um, so it, it has kind of similarity to it, but largely, this isn't a, it's not an ETF. It's just a, a closed-end fund that uh, GBTC is. So it doesn't quite behave uh, the same as what an ETF would. And... Obviously, we can see some of the downsides is 
you know, the premium has kind of run away in GBTC. Uh, personally, I don't know how people could trade it, but I mean, I'm coming from kind of a Bitcoin centric place that I've traded Bitcoin for years, though. Of course. Um, and that ETF that the Winklevoss brothers were trying to uh, get off the ground, I mean, what was what was that ETF going to consist of? Like, what did it, what was it supposed to consist of? Well, my understanding is the Winklevoss have quite a large holding of Bitcoins as well, and that was supposed to be their net asset value. The ETF, though, was supposed to go about buying and selling Bitcoins to try and keep uh, that in line with um, an index price. Actually, it was a closing price that the Gemini Exchange has been uh, recording for probably like about a year now, maybe a little bit longer. So there, there were definitely steps to turn it into you know a full-fledged ETF, and I think that was the idea behind it. What ended up happening is the SEC basically ruled that the Bitcoin market is too unregulated. And they couldn't see offering an ETF on a market so un- unregulated, which a lot of us have kind of taken to mean like, well, he kind of shot shot down all ETFs because it's not like the Bitcoin market suddenly are going to become regulated uh, within the next couple months. So, you know, they, they appealed the decision. But I don't know if that's if anything good is really going to come of that, because it seems like the SEC has determined that the Bitcoin market is just too not out of their purview to, to want to bring a, a, a product onto exchange like that. All right. So let's, um, I think what might be interesting to go into, I know we kind of maybe hit on it a little bit earlier, but is actually talking about Bitcoin as a bubble. What are your thoughts? Do you want, is that something you want to get into? Yeah. One of the interesting things about Bitcoin being a bubble versus is Bitcoin in a bubble? So I, I feel like a lot of this has been dispelled, but I still see, you know, just even last week, people calling it Beanie Babies and Tulips. And it's it just kind of like we go through these these cycles and people suddenly want to throw away that that Bitcoin ha- is a, an, a really awesome technology, a ground, a real quantum leap in technology and just look at the price and say oh that's that's got to be uh, it's a, it's a it is a bubble it's a ponzi scheme it's yada 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 but you know the internet the dot com bubble there was a lot of companies that pets.com and such like that uh but the internet survived the dot com bubble and we've i think we all realize the utility that came of the internet there was a bubble in those stocks and what was riding on the internet uh, technology, kind of the same way that I feel like we're in now with Bitcoin. I do think we're the market is exhibiting bubble-like symptoms. Uh, we see a hype cycle. We see a lot of people coming out um, that wouldn't otherwise, you know, track Bitcoin. We're seeing a lot of that through the media. It, the massive influx into a lot of the social forums, whether it be Reddit, the Telegram. I mean, we maxed out the Telegram channel in like less than a month. You know, there's there's lots of things going on that feels like a bubble. And as I was saying, you know, I was at this New York conference and it's every other person has some project they're working on. You know, this on the blockchain, that on the blockchain. And they're 
uh, we can get into it a little bit later about the the ICO market, but it feels really frothy. <laughs> okay, I guess this is probably a good question to ask. Like, what is a bubble? Like, everyone seems to be very keen to just dismiss this and just call it a bubble. But I mean, what exactly does that mean? Does it? I mean, really, does that just mean that they think it's overvalued? It's too expensive. Yeah, and I think the kind of the surrounding things that go into it, kind of the mania and the emotion, kind of give this give people this feeling that if it's too good to be true, it can't be true kind of thing. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is a lot of people, especially, you know, this is the fourth or fifth bubble that Bitcoin has been in, um, they've dismissed Bitcoin as a as a technology and a and the utility it serves and never really decided to get interested in bitcoin because they said oh well it's it's a bubble and the bubble has negative connotations and they couldn't take it seriously because of that i mean what are your views on it like you know if we zoom out and look at the big big picture i mean is there any reason why bitcoin couldn't be worth i mean i don't want to name a price but let's let's just do it anyway let's say like ten thousand dollars within the next like five years i mean there's, there's no like ceiling on how high it can go though is there some people have tried to quantify it based upon you know market caps of say companies some have said it on you know what if what if bitcoin could capture 10 percent of the gold market you know, kind of from a commodity perspective, some people have also looked at it from, you know, where does Bitcoin rate in the world currencies? And I, I, I haven't looked recently, but uh, I think we're at probably over all of the African com- countries and some other ones. Um, so there's a different perspective on people trying to quantify how high it can go. It's interesting, but I don't know if there's really a correct answer. Because to me, it seems like people just want to call it a bubble because they think it's too expensive. But I don't know. I don't see why it can't go as high as it wants to go. <laughs> like, I don't see there being a ceiling, although I obviously know a lot less about it than you and a lot of other people. But anyway, just from uh, that's my two cents. Um, you know, a buddy of mine actually has this theory, and I'm interested to get your take on it, that younger generations you know, like quote-unquote millennials or whatever you want to refer to them as, uh, don't trust the stock market uh, for investing purposes. And he he has this idea that a lot of them are going to gravitate towards uh, putting their money into Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other cryptocurrency. It just sort of seems like more the thing that they would get into. What, What do you think about that? I tend to agree. I mean, I'm a millennial. I might be on the uh, kind of outer edge of being a millennial and what it means to be millennial. But um, one of the big things that led me to Bitcoin and and a lot of the interest in in it was I used to be a gold bug. I used to be very philosophically sound money, hard money leaning. But I, as a millennial that carries, you know, like we all do, cell phones around and you're zipping emails, I always thought it was kind of strange that holding this physical gold is what, like, what what I aspire money to be. be. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bitcoin filled that missing piece of the full digital version of, of that. 
And I think millennials as well, you know, not just their distrust into um, the stock market, but I think they're coming to realize that, you know, money doesn't have to be this physical gold thing. It doesn't have to be a physical bill, you know, so they've actually already separated that bias that I think older generations have a harder time dealing with, but they've, they've just accepted it now. Mm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I tend to agree. I mean, I think it's certainly possible. Let's get into this ICO topic. I don't even know what an ICO stands for. Um, and I only heard of it like literally about a month ago for the first time. Do you mind explaining to me and I, I presume probably a lot of the people listening, what is an ICO? So first of all, ICO stands for Initial Coin Offering. Now, it sounds to the people listening a lot like something called an IPO. <laughs> and there are similarities to uh, an IPO as well as crowdfunding. So what happens now is a lot of the, the big projects that have been coming out to name a few, some of these projects that are using the Ethereum blockchain, I don't endorse these projects. I just want to give them give give some color to what's going on in the space. Uh, Patientory, which is a uh, trying to put medical records into these Ethereum contracts. Um, there's Wager that's trying to do sports betting um, through Ethereum contracts, and then there's uh, Civic, which is trying to break identity. Uh, verification to the blockchain. Now, I don't want to go into those projects. I just wanted to give some color to what's going on. But when these projects come about, um, basically, some of the, some of them have very well-known people that have been in the space for a long time. They're eventually going to do one of these ICOs. What's interesting is there's some kind of I'm not a securities lawyer, but in the crowdfunding that goes on, unlike Indiegogo and the crowdfunder. You know, they can't actually sell equity of the company to just, you know, Joe Blow down the street. They, they need to get accredited investor status, and there's a very long process. But what they'll do is they, those companies have been kind of um, confined to a lot of like widget companies that, you know, you can buy some widgets uh, that they're going to make. And some of them are cool. I've looked at a few of them. But what is going on in the ICO market is basically you're buying. Uh, the token that this project is going to uh, ride on. So um, this project, you know, for example, Patientory, um, they're doing all this medical records on 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 their Patientory token. So they're initially selling off these tokens, and the value of that token will be traded on exchanges. Or so the token will be traded on the exchanges, and the value will fluctuate based upon how they're progressing with the project. So, you know, that's what's going on right now, and there's incredible demand for these projects. I think I kind of told you about the, what I call it, missed boat syndrome. I think a lot of that is going on in this ICO market. Uh, people maybe, maybe made some money in Ethereum, and now they're looking to put it into other projects. There are they're raising tens of millions of dollars, sometimes in seconds, you know, minutes, seconds. Um, it's another kind of sign to me that this market is just, you know, it feels frothy from people trying to seek out more yield in, you know, whatever, whatever is kind of new on the block. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Okay. So how do they actually buy an ICO? Like who's, 
who's able to buy an ICO in a, a company that's that's offering these? So most of these projects are using some kind of um, Ether contract. So you're sending your Ether to this address. From that, um, the address processes and will will eventually give you the tokens for this project. Um, so some of it's open to anybody that has Ether. And I think one of the big reasons Ether has appreciated so much over the last several months is uh, these projects pretty much so require that you have Ether and use Ether, and they get locked up into these projects for some period of time. So I don't, like, some of them don't do any KYC at all. So, I mean, it's open to anybody that basically has Ether. Essentially, why these companies are doing these ICOs is it's a it's like a, a sneaky way of raising capital in some ways. Yeah, um, it's pretty much so. Like, yeah, it, it's it's a way to raise capital to get uh, their project going as fast as possible. Um, so they take in this these funds and and. Many of them are at least somewhat transparent about what they're using the funds for, you know, 5%. It's, each project has its own uh, kind of stipulations, but the idea is they can take this money and start working on stuff of value that will add value to the platform as a whole, which will result in appreciation of that token. So each token is almost like a little piece of equity of that company? Well, I want to be careful because I don't think they would describe it that, namely because if it was some part of the company, then it's then it's equity and um, probably talking about the SEC getting involved. And that that's kind of another story because they may very well get involved um, at some point. But uh, the idea is basically they have a project, they've launched a token, uh, the value of the token fluctuate based upon their progress in the project. So you have basically a piece of the the potential of what the project can yield. <laughs> Will said, Will said, very diplomatic. <laughs> and how long have these ICOs been taking place for? Like, is this a very new thing? Um, like I said, I only just heard about it like no more than a few weeks ago. How long has this been going on for? I would say that... Um, the real kind of craze with the ICOs has been, you know, this is something that's been maybe like a six, six month um, kind of heat wave. Um, there have been a number of ICOs that have occurred before that, that um, of, of lesser known coins. But I mean, Ethereum itself had an ICO. Um, that's basically the way they launched their, uh, their project. So, I mean, people that bought the ICO for Ethereum back in 2014, they basically got one Ether was roughly 30 cents. So now, as we sit here today, Ether is sitting around the $300 range. So you're talking, uh, you know, a, what is that? Thousand X? <laughs> Let's run with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, basically, I think a lot of that has set a standard where people think, okay, I want to get in right away, kind of at the ground floor. And then, 
you know, the development on this project will cause the tokens that I bought to appreciate, you know, some, some of it being staggeringly high as far as Ethereum and some other success stories. Um, so there's where the appeal to speculators has, has come. Um, and that's why I believe like it, it's, it's almost at the point of being, you know, frenetic, um, you know, the frenzy that's, that's around some of these ICOs is incredible. Even yesterday, the status ICO, I don't really know what the project is about, but there is literally so many transactions sent into this to get a piece of this ICO that they're, it basically froze the Ethereum blockchain. Like there was, there was such a backlog of transactions that they, they couldn't process new new incoming transactions like it just you it was hours to to get a transaction through so i mean to give you some sense of the demand that is there uh i I just kind of put my finger up in the air you know and feel the wind and i'm just like wow (laughs) you know (laughs) have you yourself taken part in any of these icos i have i actually am kind of ICO adverse, mainly because I don't like the idea of locking up capital for any period of time that I can't immediately trade out of it. There's certainly projects that I I may uh, invest in or I'm interested in. Um, I have a pretty strong appetite for sports betting, so um, wager being one of those projects that I think is interesting. I still have to do quite a bit more due diligence and this is by no means a recommendation for it. I just, I think the projects out there that are going on are quite interesting. Okay. Right. Now, just one last thing I want to, I guess, briefly talk about, and then we should probably uh, think about wrapping this up, but, and I know a lot of people asked me to ask you this question. Uh, I mentioned that I was going to be having you back on in the chat with traders, Facebook group. Obviously, Ethereum has gained quite a lot of popularity. Um, what is the big difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin? Like, how is it different and is it superior in any way? There's some very deep technical related things, but what I can tell you is think of what Bitcoin does really good is it transfers value. What it doesn't really do, it's kind of dumb though. I mean, it transfers value really well, but it, it can't do a lot of other things. Ethereum is kind of the uh, the king of applications. So when you talk about taking the technological advance that is blockchain and moving it to much more advanced things, whether it be doing sports betting or um, you know the, those medical records and all those kind of things, Ethereum has what's known as a Turing complete. Um, programmable code in it you know like that's and basically what that means i'm not a tech guy so i hope i don't get any hate mail is it gives it the ability to do more complex things that those things now when you ask if it's superior i think the jury is still out i'm going to be trying neutral on this i i initially was skeptical of ethereum i've since shed a lot of that and do have a lot of interest in it but those complexities, as far as the code you can put into Ethereum and how to do a lot more things, means there's more moving pieces and for more things to go wrong as well. So, you know, it, it comes at a cost. And we still don't, a lot of these projects that are coming out now, even some that have come out for a couple of years, 
um, don't really have a lot to show for it. They're still just an idea. And until those ideas turn into something where we're actually seeing what was promised done, that's where we'll see if, if Ethereum really is, I guess, superior. Okay. Time will tell. All right, man. Well, let's leave it at that for now. Is there anything else you want to add or are we good for the time being? Uh, I'm just looking over my notes. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate you coming back on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast again. So, uh, thank you very much. Where's the best place for listeners to go to uh, either find out more about you? And I don't know, I'm sure that people are probably going to have a few questions after having listened to this. Are they best to just maybe hit you up on Twitter or do you have another suggestion? Yeah, I'm extremely active on Twitter, still at BTC Vix. Um, also, our Telegram groups have been exploding. We've actually, um, uh, several of the groups, we've reached the 5,000 user max, but we have uh, the crypto groups Telegram channel actually provides all of the channels that are, are in our family. And that goes for anything from, you know, Ethereum to Bitcoin to uh, Ripple to a whole other you know, subset of currencies. So you can go on the Telegram channel, uh, type in at crypto groups, and that will direct you to whatever channel that you, you want to uh, engage in. Okay. Oh, that sounds pretty simple. So that's all they got to do. Yep. Very good. All right. Once again, man, thank you for, for doing the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.